Good evening. Wow, you guys actually responded to that. I'm sorry. I say it all the time at Reformation, and maybe it's just because we're a smaller group. I don't hear very many responses. Uh, it is good to be here with you all this evening. Uh, I am, I'm grateful that Pastor Dale was able to uh, fill in uh, at Reformation. And I would uh, ask simply as uh, before we begin here, if you would continue to keep Reformation in, in your prayers. Uh, we are growing uh, slowly and steadily. That's the way uh, church planning works. Uh, but it, it takes time and perseverance. And we just ask, we, we covet your prayers and we are thankful for all that you do to support us in this effort. Uh, please turn with me now, if you will, to our scripture reading for this evening, as well as our sermon text, which comes from Mark, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Mark, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Scripture reminds us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May we give our attention to it. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with her, him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing about around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the one man, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father, father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. 
taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Zechariah 9.9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous is He and holding salvation. Ever since Mark has introduced his Gospel, he has been driving at one thing. He has been driving to show the people of God something concerning the coming of Christ. Mark has a story that he wants to tell us concerning who the Christ is and what his mission is and why he has come. And that is namely that Christ in the God-man, that God has come to Israel. And in his coming, Christ has come to restore the people of God, to restore Israel who has found themselves long under a curse. And this one has come to deliver them from their bondage and from the curse and ultimately from death itself through the coming of a king who holds righteousness and salvation in his hands. Over and over and over again, Mark drives at these particular truths, something that you see even in the last two scenes uh, uh, within this very chapter of chapter 5 where Christ calms the wind and the rain. He does so in order to show the people of God not just that He comes with power, but that He comes with power to save and to deliver His people through the watery grave that would lie over them. He comes to deliver His people from certain death safely to the other side. We've seen Christ or heard Christ in the previous section take on an army of demons as he speaks to the man who is uh, consumed with them with legion in order to free one Gentile man from death's hold that is over him. And now we come to this third scene in Mark chapter 5 with two women's, with two women, typically those who get ignored in ancient accounts, but two women who are not well. And the question is, why is Mark telling us about these particular women? What is it that he wants to draw our attention to? I mean, how does this fit in with the big picture narrative that Mark is unfolding for us, which he never does abandon, concerning the restoration of Israel? Well, the first thing we see to that end this evening is an ill daughter. An ill daughter. Christ has returned to Israel from the other side of the sea where He has briefly been on a very short detour uh, uh, to deliver this one man of the Gentiles and to set him straight and to deliver him from the bondage of Satan. And immediately upon His return to the other side, immediately upon His return back to being with the people of God, 
the crowds press in upon him as they did before he left. The scene is very much the way that he has left it, and they are pushing in upon him. But this time, one of the significant differences that takes place is we see a man come out to meet with Jesus who would have not come out to meet him before. Jairus is a man, one who was a ruler within the synagogue, a man who would have been prominent, a prominent figure in the town, who would have overseen the religious life of the community, who would be responsible for the worship of the synagogue and organizing speakers and so on and so forth. And so because of this, we get the idea of who this man is, just because of his status and his place within the synagogue, that he is fully aware of who Jesus is. He knows who this one is that is before him. And as a religious leader, he would have been very well informed about his existence. He would have even seen him teach in the synagogue in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus casts out a demon-possessed man within the walls of the synagogue. But Jairus, most likely, though he knows of his existence, though he is fully aware of this man, he most likely would have kept Jesus at a distance or even would have been a man who would have condemned Jesus, as we've seen many of the scribes do already in the Gospel of Mark, but because Jesus is a wild card. Uh, We don't know what to make of this one who comes declaring that he is the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh. What do we do with him? And so the easiest thing for the religious community to do is to either condemn him or to step aside and ignore him altogether. But now, everything's changed for him. And we see this one who would have kept Jesus at a distance or even condemned him. We see this prominent, well-known man, highly respected in the community, working his ways through the crowd to see Jesus. And because of his status, the crowd probably would have allowed him to part through it easily. And he comes to the Christ in the middle of the crowd and he says, My little daughter... My little girl, she's at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus' daughter is dying, and he's desperate. I hear many young children here tonight. For those of you who are parents, I have two little girls at home. You know to what extent you would go to in order to keep your child alive. But what what happens on the day that you hear the words, it's cancer and it's terminal, and your little girl won't make it for more than a few weeks? What do you do when your little girl's life is on the line? And so Jairus, at the end of his rope, knowing that this power of death that is being held over her is something that he has no power and control over, Jesus has now, or Jairus has now turned his eyes to the one man whom it is both rumored and whom he believes can do anything about it. 
And Jesus hears his request, and Jesus has compassion upon him. One, uh, 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 our Lord Jesus, he is a compassionate Lord. It's one of the most beautiful things we see about him as we see his character revealed to us over and over in his humility and coming to this earth to redeem a people to himself, in his dealings with humanity, his compassion overflows from a heart of compassion. And it says Jesus hears him and he goes with him. But you'll notice two things complement or complicate his going to deliver Jairus' daughter and to make her well. First, the whole crowd goes along with him. Jarius has said, my 12-year-old girl, my daughter, she is at the point of death. It is not far off. She is on death's doorstep. And now Jesus, as he departs with Jarius, the whole crowd that has been around them, that has heard this request, decides to move with him in hopes of seeing something wonderful take place, which is just slowing the whole process down. It's like uh, an ambulance trying to make headway in congested uh, downtown traffic during rush hour. All this man wants, who has come to meet with Jesus, all he wants and all he desires is haste. Jesus has to get there before it is too late. I mean, you can sense the desperation in this man, and already coming to this man who the rest of the religious community is looking at sideways at, and yet he has come before him wholeheartedly saying, please deliver my girl, make haste, and everything is slowed down by this crowd that is pressing in upon them. I mean, if you've ever tried to... uh, If you've ever attended a concert and tried to move through that particular crowd, you understand the scene that is being painted here. Uh, It's not something you make quick headway through. When suddenly we come to the second of Jairus' problems, when we come to an unclean daughter, an unclean daughter. In verse 25, we are introduced to a woman who is quite a contrast to Jairus and his situation in life. Whereas he is uh, 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 at the center of prestige and at the center in the community where he is well-respected and looked up to as a religious leader, this woman is an outcast. The text tells us that she has been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years in such a way that it has not led to her death. Uh, In in other words, not to be uh, too insensitive, this bleeding has come from her menstrual cycle and it has not stopped the people of God, what does that mean for her especially? If she, it means that she is unclean. According to the Levitical law of Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 and following, during the time of a woman's menstrual cycle, she is defiled. During that time, she is considered unclean, and anyone she touches is unclean as well. And so you have to recognize the situation that this woman is in because of her uncleanness. When you are unclean in the Jewish community, you are set outside of the community. You are set apart from the lifeblood of the community. You are separated from the religious community. You are not welcome in the walls of the temple. You are not welcome in the synagogue. You must remain outside. She has been separated from her family, from her friends from people who would have known her well because of her uncleanness. If you think about it, I mean, her family surely would have loved her, but if she had a husband, anytime he encountered her or interacted with her, he would have been made unclean as well. 
children would have had the same situation. And so you have to recognize the situation of this woman that in many ways her life is one that is as close to being a leper as she can get. She is perpetually under the shadow of this curse of uncleanness and even death. And that may seem like extreme language to you, but I assure you it is not. She is an outsider now. She's an outcast. And she is overcome by these problems in the text in just the way it is written. We are supposed to get the sense of how desperate it is that she is. There's this, this succession of participles, one after the other, that should give us an overwhelming sense to her uh, condition. Having had a discharge of blood for 12 years, having suffered under many physicians' hands, having spent all that she had, having gotten no better, but actually having gotten worse. Here is a woman who is an outcast, who is an outsider, and who in an attempt to be made well, who has tried to restore herself, has lost all of her money, has suffered under the hands of various doctors who, uh, uh, for this particular problem, uh, practice very strange things uh, to stop the bleeding, like uh, uh, one, of their, uh, one of their practices was to uh, inform the, the, the sick person to carry around a barley corn that had come from the droppings of a white donkey. Uh, I mean, this is the kind of medical advice that she is paying for, uh, where all of her money is going, and yet nothing in all of these circumstances and all of these things that have taken place has changed her course. In fact, she only seems to be getting worse. Nothing is making her better. There is nothing that is turning this malady away from her. She is in a desperate situation when she gets word of a man named Jesus, a healer, one who restores life. And she believes and said to herself, all I need to do is touch him. That's it. Think about that. Suddenly, one who touches others and makes them unclean knows deep down somehow that if I go to this one and I touch this one, I will not make him unclean, but he will cleanse me. That is her hope. And as the crowd jostles around, she comes up and she touches his garments, and immediately it says she felt herself healed of her disease. And Jesus, knowing exactly what happens, he stops. He takes this whole crowd that is hurrying along, this whole caravan, and he pauses. This one who is heading to the doorstep of a dying girl, of a dying daughter of Israel, stops to ask the question, who touched me? And it is a, a little bit of a comical a scene here for a moment where the disciples' response is, hey, uh, it's almost like, hey, Jesus, are, are you cracked? I mean, everyone has been touching you. You're walking in the crowd of hundreds of people. Of course someone has touched you. What are you talking about? Can we just get this show on the road? And yet Jesus does this. He brings everything to a standstill. He brings it to a halt, and he calls out this daughter of Israel to stand and to declare to the crowd that has gathered around him what has happened. Because something radical has just taken place here. 
This woman who has been unclean for 12 years, somehow when she reached out and touches Jesus, she is no longer defiled, but he makes her clean. He removes her impurity from her. And so she stands there declaring to the crowd what she has done, what the condition has been that she has been under, and how Jesus has made her well. How the unclean has touched the clean. Christ looks her in the eye and he declares, daughter. Notice the intentionality of that word here. We'll come back to this. But Jesus uses it on purpose. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Or more literally, be healed of your scourge. This blight, this curse that has been upon you. And all of this is well and good. I mean, we want to rejoice with this particular woman, but you'll remember the context of this scene as Jesus has stopped on his way to heal another daughter who is on her deathbed of something that is very serious and grievous, something that is so serious that Jairus is trying to hurry him at every point. I mean, if if you stopped a doctor, if you were in this same situation, and you stopped a doctor who was on his way to the ICU, who treated you for something like an ulcer, that's called malpractice today. That's the situation that is before us. When Jairus hears the news, sir, you now have a dead daughter. A dead daughter. Jairus, it's too late. Let's leave the matter be, master be now. I mean, put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a moment. You know your child is on death's doorstep. And you watch this man hindered by the crowd, and yet he was patient with the crowd and did not cast them away. Now you watch this man stop to heal a woman who bled for 12 years, who put everything on hold for her to be able to proclaim and tell her story to the crowds. All the while, precious time is slipping by until suddenly it's too late. For death has had its victory over her, and she's gone. But Jesus turns to Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe. What is it that Jairus is supposed to believe? Well, what is it that he has just seen? He's just witnessed this woman who has suffered for 12 years, that her faith has made her whole, and he is now to believe in this one who can heal Because he just witnessed the healing of this particular daughter who suffered for 12 years, calling her daughter, being brought out from under the curse, raising her from a living dead into a healing that is wholeness and completeness. And now Christ can go to his house and meet his 12-year-old daughter and make her whole as well. And the question is, Jarius, can you believe these things? Jesus, in essence, is saying, as one minister describes it, my unclean, dying daughter is now whole and at peace. What will happen to yours if you only believe? And they go to the house where you'll notice Christ sends the mourners away. He sends them away, those who are outside who are weeping. And he takes this child, he takes this 12-year-old daughter of Israel by the hand. Again, 
just like the bleeding woman, he touches this one who when death comes upon her, death would have defiled her, she would have been unclean. He touches this one who in death is unclean and he says, little child or little infant even, little lamb, I say to you, arise. And this one who has been under the curse of death arises and lives. Now, people of God, what is it that we are to see here? What is it that we are seeking, seeing take place? I mean, these two stories are getting at the same thing for us to see. There are just too many coincidences for us to treat these as separate accounts. Both have 12 years mentioned in connection to them. Both are daughters. Both are female, both unclean, both touched by Christ and made clean, both made whole, and both brought out from under the curse of the affliction that they had been under. What is it that Mark would have us see here about the Son of God? You see, people of God, what he is declaring here for us is that the daughters of Zion are being restored. The daughters of Zion is a phrase that you will find less than 20 times in the Old Testament, but it basically refers to the house of Israel. The house of Israel is being restored. Remember, this is one of Mark's overarching and main premises as he considers who Christ is and what it is that he has come to do. He has come to restore the people of God, the house of Israel, because Israel has been under a curse. They have been under affliction. And if you don't believe me, go back and read Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you obey my word, O Israel, here are the blessings that you will receive, and here are the curses if you disobey, and then read all of the maladies that are declared will come upon them. And then the maladies that Christ encounters, those oppressed and in bondage to demons, those who have illnesses and maladies that do not leave them, the children die young. These things are part of the curse, and God's people are under a curse. In fact, it is the very curse of sin and death that binds all men. And now, Christ has come. And now we cry out with Zephaniah from chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, listen to this, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hand grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, who will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, all of them. And I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcast, like the woman we just saw a moment ago, and I will change their shame into praise. You see, people of God, Christ, the King of glory, He has come to deliver His people from the curse of sin and death, 
And he has come to bring forth new life. He has come to deliver and redeem the outcasts, the defiled, the unclean, those who have no business in the religious communities. People of God, what is it that Isaiah 64 declares about us, about God's people? declares to us about you and I. It tells us that we have all become like those who are unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Literally, in that text, our righteousness, our good works before Him have become as menstrual rags. But when Christ comes, the King of glory, He comes to restore the people And when he does, Isaiah 65, the very next chapter, tells us that no more will be heard the sound of weeping. Remember what he did with those mourners? He sent them away. And no more shall there be an infant. Remember, that is the very word that Mark uses to describe the 12-year-old girl. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, but a young man shall live to be a hundred. Christ has come to restore His people. Why is it that all of these things come about? Because the Son of God is here. The King of glory who holds salvation in His hand. He is in their midst, a mighty one to save you, who is gathering the mourners and the outcasts and turning our our shame into joy. people of God, this is what Christ has come to do and what he's come to do for you. He's come to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. He's come to cleanse you who are considered outcasts, the freaks, those who are not fit for the people of God, and He is drawing you to Himself, that you may enter into the very presence of the living and true God. And people of God, may we rejoice in the work of those one who has come to undo the curse. But He does come and undo this curse at a great price. For there is a cost to this cleansing to bring death, men or people from death to life. And that cost is his own life, who lays his own life down as a ransom for many. People of God, may we turn to our Christ, the Son of the living God, our Redeemer, and praise him for restoring us to newness of life, for drawing us who have been unclean and unrighteous all our days, even at the best of our moments, May we praise and rejoice in Him who has drawn us into the presence of the living and true God through His death and through His resurrection. For people of God, He is the only way that we will ever enter into the presence of the true God. For without Him, without this this one who touches the unclean and makes them clean, we are all lost under the curse of sin and death. Therefore, may we rejoice at this great King of glory who has descended. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and holding salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, we come before you and we are ever grateful for all that you have done for us. We praise and magnify your name, Father, with our voices and with the whole of our lives, for there is nothing else that we can do. Lord, how could we repay you for such a great act of compassion and kindness and mercy? For you have made dead men alive. Lord, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that is within us, and we pray that you would continue to work within the hearts of your people. I pray for Harvest Church, for those who are gathered here this evening. I pray that you would continue to strengthen and build them up, continue to sanctify them by your Holy Word, continue to grow them. Father, conform them more and more into the image of Christ, and I pray, Father, that even as we uh, prepare to depart from here and return to our ordinary vocation, back to our ordinary lives, we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to turn our eyes to the heavens from where our help comes from. For our help is in the name of the Lord, Him who made heaven and earth. Pray, Father, that you would continually remind them of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that He has done for us in order that we might live uh, in turn lives of thanksgiving before you. Father, we pray that you would help us to cast off the sin that so easily entangles and help us to run the race that is set before us. Help us to walk according to the calling by which we have been called, for we cannot do these things apart from your mercy and kindness. Lord, we come before you and we are grateful for Jesus, our great high priest who intercedes on our behalf, cleansing us of all unrighteousness. And we praise you for him, both now and even as we sang earlier, forevermore. We praise his holy and magnificent name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. People of God, Please uh, rise now as we sing together hymn number 457, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.